Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's Michael C. Bouchard, host of Nice Stalker Podcast. We are here at season um, season six, episode forty nine, and I have a, a question from uh, Terry Sutton, who is the uh, the host of the um, Savage Watch uh, webpage, uh, which deals with uh, missing people, um, unidentified people, uh, homicides, unsolved homicides. Uh, he has a question that he sent me. Um, an audio question he sent me, and I'm just going to play it now to see what it is, and we'll come up with an answer. Mike, this is Terry from SavageWatch.com. You being a police officer, are there any cases that you looked at years later where you say to yourself, the police really screwed up, or in some cases, the police fabricated evidence and an innocent person was sent to jail. Do any cases in particular really stand out to you that annoy you and frustrate you to this day? Well, I have to say, I, I don't, and I can't remember over almost 40 years of, regardless of what police department I worked in or people I work with, I never remember anyone ever fabricating uh, evidence uh, or scenes. I think this is, this is like the, would be the 1% of the, or the 0.001% of the um, times that stuff like that occurs, at least at a local or state level. Um, you know, I, I, I myself have, don't know any of those cases. Uh, there are cases that do uh, frustrate me. They're later. They're, they're actually earlier uh, cold cases. Um, the one that really um, frustrates me is the um, the eight Vernon uh, females that were murdered or disappeared in the um, Vernon, Connecticut area between uh, nineteen sixty eight and. Um, 1978, you know, that included Lisa Joy White, Janice Pocket, Susan LaRosa, Irene LaRosa, um, just to name a few. Janice Pocket. Um, and the reason I say this is because when I when I was doing uh, the book uh, Missing in Connecticut, uh, while I was writing it, I had interviewed a few people that were... Uh, actually living in the area at the time, actually related to the person I believed who was involved in it, and actually confirmed my suspicions of who was involved in it and who the primary suspect was. Uh, and all the evidence I had was tangible. Um, I had forwarded it to uh, both the Vernon Police Department and the uh, Connecticut State Police, and uh, they effectively did nothing. Uh, so that was very frustrating. Uh, it was uh, a disservice. Uh, you know, how do you have uh, a man's sister disappear and then conveniently uh, his wife disappears, uh, his new girlfriend moves in three days later, and he makes statements of, um, you know, when he went to uh, view the body, he viewed it with a uh, sister-in-law. 
um, who said to him while he was uh, at Farmington at the medical examiner's office IDing the body, she says, well, Robert, if you did that, uh, we understand. And he said, thank you. He said, I didn't do this. He didn't even try to defend it. He just said, thank you. Okay, that's not a grieving husband. That's someone accepting, uh, accepting the understanding for what he did. I had talked to his brother-in-law who said he was called to the apartment that his wife um, had passed away, well, disappeared from, as he claims. Um, when I had talked to this gentleman who was the brother-in-law, he said he was called to the apartment. Uh, he went to the apartment. Um, he said he, as he walked up to the apartment, there was a uh, brown uh, Crown Victoria down there. And as he approached the car, um, the suspect said to him, um, don't go into the fucking car because uh, he knew why. I said, well, well why, why did he say that? And I'm not using any names right now, but um, he says, well, because uh, his wife's body was in it. I know you knew it was in there because what you didn't, what he didn't realize was I interviewed the daughter at the time was 47, but she was five years old at the time and was in the apartment. So I knew him and the, the suspect husband had uh, carried the body into the car. Uh, he happened to be the person that dumped the body. Um, and then I said, well, what did the apartment look like? I wanted him to place him in the apartment. He said, well, it was like something I've never seen. It was like somebody pulled off a cat's head and spun it by its tail. There was blood all over the place, and it was a big bloody rock in the living room. Well, one, I never told him that the, the, the victim, after they had recovered her remains years later, uh, was killed by a blunt strike to the head by something. Um, the daughter, who was in the apartment at the time, said it occurred in the living room. I never told him it occurred in the living room. Uh, she said that the man that uh, was with my father smelt like um, cherry tobacco. When I interviewed one of his uh, ex-wives, she said that he smoked Captain uh, Captain uh, something's um, cherry tobacco. Okay, so all these pieces fit. Um, you know, he was still alive. Unfortunately, the suspect had died um, a few months prior. And then he made a real statement when I asked him if... Uh, do you think he was involved in the uh, murders of all of the other and the disappearances of all the other girls in the area? He goes, uh, yeah, I do. Very, very without a thought, he said that. I said, why do you think that, Barry? And he said to me, well, he said, um, I, w I went over to his house one day and he was soundproofing a van. He wanted me to do some wiring on the van. I said, what kind of van? He said, a white van. And he said, I said, I asked him why he was uh, soundproofing the van. And he said, because 
I can put anybody I want in the back and do whatever I want and nobody's going to hear me. So you have to remember, in the Lisa Joy white case, there was a white, white van involved. In uh, Debbie Spickler case, there was a van involved. Uh, possibly in Janice Pocket case, there was a white van involved. So, so what's that tell you? Okay, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to figure out uh, what what happened there, who did it. Okay, it, it was it was as simple as is is you know time itself, and um, the the really horrendous thing was I actually had located a person in uh, New Hampshire who was related who actually uh, came over the house uh, the next day. Uh, to watch, you know, the the children, and she was given a, a putty knife by the suspect, and asked to clean the blood off the stairs and the floors, which she did. Um, I knew about the, um, I knew about the putty knife. Um, So, with this being said, I've heard it from three different people, so it is a fact I heard it from the person that used it to clean the blood up. Um, she was never interviewed by the police. And then back, you know, this happened in 73. You know, the disappearance of the sister happened in 71. This happened in 73. And back in 2007, Henry Lee wanted to do a... Uh, a forensic examination of the apartment. Well, listen, I don't have too much uh, faith in Henry Lee. Um, the apartment had been remodeled several times. The flooring had been thrown out. The staircase was new. Um, what did you expect to find? All right. Just saying. Okay. So, yeah, that that case pretty much um, eats at me. Um, the case in Bridgeport, uh, Connecticut, with um, Bianca Lebron, they had they had found the um, suspect uh, van, and they had released it back to the suspect. Who had taken it down to New Jersey and had it destroyed? That was another mess up. Um, there was a case in um, Upper State Connecticut where uh, a vehicle was involved. Um, more than likely, the vehicle which the suspect had been killed in, again, um, not being seized on the scene even though it had noticeable damage to it, uh, smashed front window, this and that, as it attempted to leave the vehicle. Police did not uh, seize it, did not hold it for evidence, and again, the, the vehicle disappeared and it was never seen again. Uh, and we have a, you know, in both cases, all cases, we have, you know, people involved 
and murdering people just walking around because it was too much time to seize a vehicle or hold a vehicle or do whatever you want or interview people. And and, and, and FYI, uh, in the um, Janice Pocket case, uh, the individual I had talked to uh, had worked in the town, town school system as a janitor at night. Uh, when the police went to retrieve Janic, Janice Pocket's uh, medical records from the school, guess what? They weren't there. Figure it out. Not, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. Uh, so with that being said, yeah, like I said, Terry, I, I, I don't know anybody personally or never have heard of anybody fabricating uh, evidence. That's a very rare, rare um, case. Um, as far as not handling evidence the right way, and which is allowing uh, suspects to uh, get away, that happens more so than I would like to say, but it is what it is. Um, you know, you have to, when you go to a, a, a scene where somebody has disappeared um, under unusual circumstances, uh, you have to... Anything that looks like it could be evidence, you have to seize it as evidence. Uh, because down the road, it's it's going to be something. Or it's going to solve the case. But until then, I am Michael C. Bouchard, host of Nightcast, Night Stalker Podcast. This is season six, episode number, what, we are on 48, 49. We are on 49 right now.